Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Tim Leach. Tim is the CEO of Wavelength Charity Limited, a charity which combats loneliness among vulnerable and isolated people through the use of technology. Uh, Tim, hello. Hello. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Tim. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Certainly is a wonderful day for it. And um, I think we should start, of course, by addressing the elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in early June 2021. And so we're still within the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic somewhat, even though we're starting to move out of social restrictions. And we have been under some form of lockdown for the best part of the last 14 months. So with that in mind, to what extent has all of this affected you and affected your organisation first and foremost? Well, Scott, I think um, there were a number of things which we're doing before the pandemic was there. Um, I have to say, I, I closed my organisation before, uh, well, I, I shut the office. The organisation's worked throughout the pandemic. I haven't heard of anybody. Um, and I've kept uh, on providing uh, help and support to everybody who needed it because actually my sort of organisation was born exactly for this, you know, keeping people in contact and in touch during a uh, situation where they were forced into isolation. Um, but we have some pointers. You know, Scott, everybody forgets eight, nine years ago, we we're going to hit the major flu pandemic. And the government was getting us ready for that over the winter. So I've always had things like uh, a VQ clean of my office on a Friday. Um, I've always made sure my staff are issues with things like hand gel and tissue. Now, those sound very simple things, but it came from that period. And I have to say, you know, if I, I could remember back to that, my corporate knowledge was there, why well, wasn't government? So, you know, I also benefited from the fact that I, I live in the Cambridge area. I, I had um, a number of academics who were really on top of what was going on and the, the, the virus spread. And they were telling me how dangerous this thing would be. It wasn't just a, uh, a cough and a bit of flu and uh, whatever that has been reported um, at that sort of period running up to the pandemic before. You know, lots of people are not taking it very seriously. I think the other thing was um, I've been pre-planning for the impact of Brexit on charity. So there was lots of things which I'd done which were beneficial to the situation we moved into. And that was made, one of them was making sure we had enough liquid assets to actually run for up to two years. Um, so we're, we're obviously later on going to see more fallout from Brexit. And I think we're going to see more fallout from the pandemic. But over that period, we were prepared to run. And I suppose we had 
because we've already been talking to the government, DCMS and other departments about what the needs at that particular time in the country were, which they were ignoring because they're so consumed by this question of Brexit and sort of pushing civil servants into different departments, mm. trying to you know, get ready or fumble the ball or whatever they were particularly doing. Um, we are aware they are taken their eyes off major infrastructural things such as health, you know, broadband connectivity. You know, every household should be connected, but isn't. Um, the data cost of that, you know, we need to bring that down to a fair and equitable level so everybody can get on board. And also the equipment cost. And government for years and years has pushed money down the black hole of training. And what I mean by that is that training is not a one-off cost. But they think it is. They think you train somebody and they can get online and be able to cope. Well, the next update comes along and they can't. So what you need is equitable support of people. But if people can't invest or afford the equipment they need or um, get connected onto the internet, it's not going to be much good for them. Um, you, you need to bring those prices in range that people can, can actually uh, start to utilise it and don't feel that it's that too far to them. And you also need to make it far more accessible in terms of how it operates. And at the moment, I think we've seen great things come out of Zoom um, and FaceTime and Skype, which have really supported people. It's not the same as meeting with everybody, but I hold a staff meeting every day, and I started that from the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and some of the things I was doing was literally picking up the office server and bring it back home and plugging it in so my staff could work because my office doesn't have broadband speech which will stand up because there hasn't been a policy in making sure that every business should have access to you know, broadband or every charity. And we are still being counted in our either household on one, one extent or a business on the other extent. And there needs to be some sort of recognition that organisations like mine are very unique bodies um, and need the, need the support and the infrastructure to be able to help people. At the moment, I, I can sort of reflect back to the, the, the providers um, of my sort of home telephone saying they weren't going to give me a static IP and they, I had to wait 14 days anyway and if I changed my home into an office, it would never be able to be changed back. To which I kind of think, I am reacting. I'm trying to make sure that I'm taking account of everybody's needs here. I'm a frontline service because I'm dealing with loneliness and isolation and the oldest charity in the world doing that, I hasten to add, and particularly one which is working in the technology area. I, I'm just flabbergasted that there's a large cartel we still have, which we have not made more flexible to work under circumstances where we need them to work. Um, so we're behind the curve, and it's one of the reasons that coming, coming up to what we, the first lockdown, where the over-70s were shielding, I would have loved to be able to hand everybody a tablet and get them to take those off, get online, do lots of 
lots of other things. And the support networks were available to help people do that, but the infrastructure wasn't. Um, the cost of data was still high. You know, it wasn't being given away at that stage by BT, Virgin, and others. It, it just wasn't happening. Um, so we we opted for radio, and we opted to make sure people had access to digital radio because uh, it gave them a bit more. Um, and we had already run a campaign to make sure that it would still be all digital radios were the FM um, compliant and that plus compliant so that the switch over it wouldn't affect them. And we worked very closely with DCMS to bring about those changes and some other organisations. So we knew it would be a, a good bit of kit and we also understand that everybody talks about digital health well, actually, they're trying to give a shorthand about technology. Um, and I think one of the learning curves from this should be that there's a lot of technology out there which can relieve loneliness and isolation, which is off the shelf, so it's replaceable, it's cheap, so it doesn't cost the earth, and it can be delivered to people's homes within the circumstances we're, we're in at the moment and can be very, very supportive. So. You know, I can tell you that the radios we gave out to the over 70s, I've, I've been working with that uh, university to look at the impact of that. And some of the, the impact we have is that it, it significantly reduced people's isolation and loneliness and increased their, you know, their feelings of health and well-being. Um, and that's fantastic over the, you know, nearly 8,000 8, radios we gave out. The only thing which prevented us giving more was that government wouldn't give us any money to run the scheme. Um, and that is the, the prime shame for everything we've been doing. So we've self-funded everything. My staff have been very, very good at getting on and doing their jobs. Um, and I think the thing I reflect on, which I, I haven't seen, particularly when I was taking on new starters before the pandemic, and was the amount of pastoral care I was having to do. Um, and that was, that's a very, very unusual set of circumstances which have, have arisen. Um, and I think giving flexibility was working, making sure that people could you know, access out the outside world when they had time to within the day by hours, therefore, you know, allowing to people work when they, they could work. Um, to understand that younger members of staff actually had other obligations as well as the older ones. Um, and some of those definitely needed to be, to be able to get out of the bedroom they're working in and to have a walk or do a bit of exercise when they're allowed to or start reflecting on other ways they could um, feel better about working from home and missing people that they haven't necessarily had the opportunity to have connection with besides over Skype or FaceTime. I think you raise a hugely important point there in the sense that what the pandemic certainly has done is unearth a lot of deep-seated inequality in UK society and digital poverty is such a massive, massive part of that. And if as we are hearing from industry, that flexible working could well become a real status quo going forward from here, bridging that technological gap and allowing people to access 
of course, gigabit Wi-Fi, um, the technology required as well, like the different mobile devices that they're going to need to do their work. It's going to be incredibly important. And as you said, there's been a real absence of policy there. So when it comes to building back better, this is something that the government really is going to have to address, isn't it, going forward from here? Um, so I think it's, it's important to understand what I mean by digital equality. Um, so it's not just about services which go online or can go online, not ones which you just can get on your phone or um, through your radio. Um, I'm talking about accessibility at the level that if somebody cannot use the internet, does not have a mobile phone, does not have access to a radio, um, that they still can access services in a manner which is appropriate to them. That may be they want to write a letter, or it may be they want to pick up a, pick up a, a landline and make a phone call. Um, and we're seeing major authorities not allowing people to access them directly. We've seen a whole shake-up within, you know, different local authorities coming together and then putting everybody on the switchboard when all one has, wants to do is get it, get you in them to because it's been missed. And you've got to go online to do that. I think madness of older people who have been living in upstairs flats and not being able to make, you know, get upstairs because of steps or get out because of steps have to join a citizen's online course or, you know, um, the, one of the, one of the, um, Tinder Foundation courses, which are there, which is an accessible building to actually register to get the flat as you move downstairs. And you kind of think, well, why isn't anybody looking at the inequalities there? Why isn't the Equalities Commission actually questioning this? Well, when you look at the Equalities Commission being headed up really by the you know, same ministers who are heading up things like um, EWP and also heading up, you know, ministers of disabled people. You just wonder whether, whether that could be a question over the equality which is happening. You know, we also have these things like worldwide web accessibility standards, uh, but they don't account for the majority of disabled people. So undoubtedly, within the UK, one of the issues we have around digital equality is the amount of people who, who have cognitive processing impairments, whether those are visual or auditory, and those include things like dyspraxia, dyslexia, um, dysgraphia. And that those are really key things. And we're seeing more and more things go online, more and more things being forced into tech. And then somebody's saying, well, you get a screen reader to do that. Well, unfortunately, you can't. You know, it's not good enough for some people. But actually, what they need is human intervention and support. And that, that's the bit I think has been really missed in the digital equality debate, is that we've got to maintain non-digital services. And though I'm really a technology charity, I can tell you, without people, technology doesn't work. You know, the lack of foresight, the lack of wanting to make sure we actually support our citizens in an appropriate way 
look at the benefits to UK's PLC overall and make sure that everybody on board and included within that to the extent they can be, but not cut them off from services, is unbelievable. And there seems to be a mantra that we will do digital by default, which is not good enough. We, we might need to make sure that everybody is taken along on that, that ride. We're looking at not just equality, we're looking at equity. And there's a difference, and I think um, it needs to be part of the planning. We need to retrospectively look at government policy and change it where it's starting to lead to things like loneliness and isolation. Um, because those are the things which then start to impact upon our health service. Um, so, you know, a lot of this is starting to be taken more seriously. You know, a lot of what we're talking about at the moment is sustainability and how big corporates and companies and you know, small ones can become more sustainable. Well, we need to make sure we've got loneliness right to the heart of that because that's part of the sustainability we need to start to think. How do you support staff team through those processes? How do you make sure that people are included within how you, how you make sure they're benefiting from the changes socially. And this is not just about cutting the cost of everything. Actually, what has happened is because we have cut everything so much, it's now costing us far more to actually try and prop everything up. And we, if we're taught about the loneliness and isolation and linking people together as a right for people, we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. Um, you know, it, I think digital equality is a little bit more than just saying that everybody can get online, everybody can have a piece of equipment. It's uh, about making sure those who can't aren't cut off from services. Um, and that's, that, that should be universally there. And it, it's coming as a cost that is affecting people's health now um, from it's problematic to book uh, an appointment to go to see a GP or get your jab, etc. And it's all being either over a phone or it's being put onto um, an online system. And those are actually hurting people. And I think as soon as you start hurting people, we start to incur costs for UK PLC. And that's really where the bottom line should be, um, looking at where the real real costs are lying and how we can mitigate those costs. And that's what a lot of my charity does, it saves the, the public a lot of money. It produces results and outcomes from the NHS, which they can't follow through, but we do. And it saves government an awful lot, as in terms of how funding it's pushing in. And there's loads of things they could actually do to make that a, a simpler process for organisations like mine. I think there's an awful lot of food for thought for ministers there going forward, Tim. Absolutely right. And it's unfortunate that we are just about out of time on the programme this morning because it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you onto the show with us. And as we start to see what sort of shape the future is going to take as well, I think it would be wonderful to actually welcome you back onto the programme and see just exactly 
what shape the post-COVID world is taking. But for now, Tim, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you very much, Scott, for having me along. It's been a real pleasure, Tim. And coming up next on the programme today, we're going to be keeping it eye-opening by welcoming our chairman, Lord David Blunkett, the former Education Secretary, onto the programme today. He will be discussing his take on the events of the last 14 months and also his hopes for what will come in those to be with us shortly. That is coming up next on the programme. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm. 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports, and this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm-hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.